Unfortunately, not all of you have been hearing him. Some have. You came on different nights, but you're all here this morning. And I want to you to know that this is truly a powerful man of God. And I'm saying this uh, in the most humble way that I can. It is not to um, swell anyone's head, but it is just to state the fact that when God has gifted you uh, in singing, gifted you in preaching, gifted you in evangelism, we must praise God for that. Amen? It is my goal and prayer to see God blessing his church with the gifts. And I'm talking about you in the audience. It is not just as us as ministers. It is not just uh, singers or musicians and all of that. God has gifted each and every one of us. And if we can just allow ourselves to be used, can you imagine what this church would look like? Can you imagine what this landscape will look like? I think they would have to change the name from Sint Sin City to Saint City. You know what I mean? And it is my prayer that one day it happens, right? But it's going to start with you. It's going to start with me doing our duty under the command of the Holy Ghost. The speaker of the hour is none other than Pastor Omar Jarvis. He hails from the province of Montreal, Canada, Quebec, Canada. Uh, he has um, earned his degrees from Atlantic Union College, Andrews University. Uh, he is not alone in his ministry. Right now, listening way back about 4,100 miles away is his beloved wife, Angie Jarvis. Let's put our hands together for Angie Jarvis. We're taking good care of your husband. He also has a daughter, 11 years old, Milaika, and uh, she is cheering for her daddy, and also Eliana cheering for her daddy, and their prayer is to have a little brother. <laughs> but, you know, he's saying mercy. Uh, that is going to be, hopefully, the Lord, he can do great things, right? But we'll see. Um, but I want to give a shout out to uh, the family, uh, the, ja the Jarvis family and the Brooks family that is listening online.
God is better than that. Praise the Lord, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. I've had the privilege to be with you all week, and God is good. What do you say? Oh, come on. Can you turn to your neighbor? Turn to your neighbor. Look them in their baby blues, browns, greens, or whatever they got. Give them your biggest, brightest, God is good kind of smile, and I want you to tell them, God is good. There's something about being in the house of the Lord. Something about being in the house of the Lord. I want to thank the choir for their wonderful musical presentation, for the praise team, for, for all of those who have extended the hospitality to me throughout, throughout this week. It has been a blessing and a privilege to be with you. I'm going to invite you to just give me a little bit more volume. This morning, this morning we are getting ready to wrap up. Tonight we're going to have the final message. And as we are breaking the chains, the, the message tonight will be entitled Training for the Victory. I don't know about you, but I can't wait until this thing is done. And so tonight we're going to learn how to train to be victors. I, I don't want to be a loser in this thing. But I want to be a winner. Amen. How, how, how about you? How about you? Amen. So tonight, tonight, we're going to close this off tonight as we look at how we can be victors. But this morning, we are going to look at the subject, who will stand? Who will stand? Pray with me. Gracious God, even as the song has been sung, we give ourselves to you. Lord, I'm inviting your Holy Spirit to come into our open hearts, to come into our open minds. And Lord, that you will speak to us so that, Lord, we might be renewed. We might be revived. We might be convicted. We might be converted. And that, Lord, we will not leave this place the way that we came in, is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. The past two weeks, it has been on the lips of everyone. What happened to the flight that left from Malaysia? CNN and all the news stations have been covering almost around the clock any new discoveries, any new leads. How could it be that a plane just disappeared in thin air, vanished? But even more disconcerting, than the fact that a plane, a, 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 a mechanical device over 200 feet long 
could just vanish from the, tra from the, from the face of the earth is the fact that there were over 250 people on board that plane. Each one of them with families, with loved ones, some with children, some without, some with spouses, some without, but each one a human being. As you listen to the cries of the individuals, they, they are asking the more important question right now, more than where the plane has gone, is what has happened to my loved one? Has anyone survived? Just as recently as yesterday, they were investigating the possibility that a piece of the wing may have been found in the Indian Ocean. But then again emerges that question, did anyone survive? There is a hopefulness that comes when we think about survivors. Survivors tells us that you've gone through something, but you've been able to come out on the end. You know, whenever there is a tragedy, a, a, a crisis, a, a storm, usually after they look at all the devastation, the first question that emerges is, were there any survivors? I remember hearing my uncle tell the story. When on September 11, 2001, he had gone to work as usual. He worked in the World Trade Center. He described that day as they heard the alarms go off, they, they did not know what was happening. But suddenly there was a, a panic, a, a sense of urgency, and he recounted how he and many others went through the process of trying to pull people from the building, usher them out uh, without trying to create a sense of chaos. He said it wasn't until he went home and realized just how many people had lost their lives. How blessed he was to be counted amongst the survivors. There's something about being able to go through and then come out on the other side. We all like to hear survivor stories, whether it is surviving a tragedy, a crisis, whether it is going through financial hardship and then being able to come back, whether it's going through uh, the, the, the loss of a loved one and yet being able to find a way to continue and to move on. We love to, to hear that on the other side of the story that something good will happen. Well, I dare to suggest to you that as we look at, at the time that we are sitting in, at the time that this world is facing, we will never be in greater need of a survivor story than what is to come ahead. In fact, John had a vision. And as he was being given this vision, he found himself looking for a survivor story. The Word of God tells us this vision that John had. It is recorded in John chapter 6. Beginning at verse 13, it says, And the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, that's all right. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You see, John had a vision. And in the vision, there was great earthquakes, and the sun became black, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell from the earth, and the sky receded as a scroll, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and men were hiding themselves um, in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. You see, John saw a vision that caused him to be afraid. 
Can you imagine living in a time when all of these events would happen and come to pass? He knew that there was a great crisis that was coming. It was shown to him. And he knew that God was not joking. You see, it's one thing to, to hear about all the things that will come. I'm sure you've heard about all the prophecies and that, that will come in the end of time. And, and oftentimes we can block it out of our mind and, and think that that is yet to come. That it is still ahead and I don't have to worry about it. But understand that when John was sitting on the island of Patmos, a, a prisoner, that he was reminded starkly that God meant business. How? Because he knew that there had once been a flood. Now, we know this flood described in Genesis. It was the flood that Noah and his family were the only survivors of. But what we've got to understand about this flood is, is that it was a great cataclysmic event. And in fact, it describes that not only did a rain come down, because you see, oftentimes we are only told uh, about the rain coming down, but we've got to understand that in Genesis, the Bible tells us that, that waters rained down from heaven and it burst forth from the deep. And, and we understand that there was cataclysmic, volcanic activity that was happening. In fact, it is suggested that the Grand Canyon, just not too far from here, is actually the process of what happened when the water the floodwaters moved through the land. It was so described that rocks were thrown up into the air and in fact they have found certain places in this world where there are rocks the size of skyscrapers placed on top of each other like children would put their Lego blocks one on top of the other. Now the island of Patmos is one such place. For you see, the very rocks that John was sitting on served as testament to the fact that God had once brought judgment upon the earth. So he knew that when God said that there was an end coming, that God meant business. Are you with me? And so John began to be filled with a sense of fear and trepidation. And he, he, he looked and he records these words for the great day of his wrath has come. And who will be able to stand? You see, God is coming. God wants to put an end to all of this mess. Now, now, we've got to understand that when we are talking about breaking the chains, breaking the curse that is binding each and every one of us, God isn't trying to put a temporary fix on a problem. What good is it to have a chain be broken today and then tomorrow have somebody try to put you back in captivity? What good is it to be free today and then you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you find that somebody else has come to take you captive? God says, I want to put an end to it once and for all. And understand that when God comes to put an end to the curse, that it will be a great and terrifying moment, so much so that when John looked at it, he asked the question, who's going to survive it? Is there anybody that can go through all of this and be able to make it through on the other side? What has happened sadly in our society is we've tried to turn our attention away from the reality that is coming to us. Because while we desire that the curse is broken, we want to forget the cost that will come as a result of the curse being ended. And so it is that we turn our attention to everything else. And pretty soon it's easy to forget that there is a time coming that we will, we will ask the question, Will I be able to stand? You know, I liken it to this story that I once heard about a gentleman who grew up always hearing about Jesus coming. And he began by telling me, first of all, that, you know, I, I remember hearing my grandmother when I was a little child tell me that the end is going to come and Jesus is coming soon. And, and then I began to grow up and now he was a man in his 50s, and he said, you know, 
I don't know if Jesus is coming anymore. I, I feel like I'm hopeless. Then he began to liken his sense of, uh, 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 of doubt, his sense of dread and fear to a story he had once read about a man who was imprisoned. And this man who was imprisoned decided that he wanted to get out of prison. And so it was that he concocted a plan where he would find a way to get out from prison. It was ingenious. He worked out with the old grave digger that used to work out in the field, digging the graves for the prisoners. He promised him that when he would come out, he would take him to where he had hidden some of his money that the government had not been able to find, and he would give him a great portion. And so it was that it was arranged that one of the coffins would be left open, and he would come, and when nobody was noticing, he was to slip in and pull the lid shut. Then, after he had been put inside the ground, the old grave digger would come and would dig him out. And so they set the plan in motion. And after he was in the coffin, he knew that it was just only a matter of time before he was to be delivered. And so it was that he felt the, 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 ca the casket being transported. He could feel the, the bump as it moved inside the vehicle, and he could hear the opening of the gate as he was exiting the prison walls. And, and then he, he felt the casket being lowered down into the ground, and he could hear the sound of dirt dropping softly against the casket. He knew that his plan was near complete. And so it was, it was just a matter of waiting. And so he waited, and, and it seemed like an eternity in the dark. He knew at some moment that the old gravedigger should be digging in, and the sound of the shovel would hit against the casket. But there was no sound. After a while, the sense of claustrophobia began to take in to his mind. He tried to hum and to sing, to think about all the things he would do once he was on the outside of the walls and he would be a free man once again. But after a while, what seemed like an eternity, it seemed that nobody was coming. He reached into his pocket, pulled out the book of matches that he had and said, I wonder who it was who was kind enough to share his coffin with me. He struck his match in a coffin. And the, through the glow of the flame, he looked at the face of the person who was willing to share the casket. And to his horror, he recognized that face as the old gravedigger. He felt in that moment that life had ended because it had. Nobody knew where he was, and nobody knew how to get him out. Sadly, our world has come to that point where we have seen suffering. We have gone through great crisis. We are enduring personal pain that it seems that nobody understands, and we think that God has forgotten. So we wipe out the very fact that God will come to deliver us, and it becomes easy to dismiss the things that will happen before but I'm telling you today that we are not like this man trapped in a situation that we cannot get out of. God is coming. He will break the curse. The curse shall be ended. You see, what we've got to realize is that even though it seems like we are waiting an eternity and a thousand years is but as a day to God. So I dare to suggest that we ought to remember that God will come. And the question is, will we be able to stand? Well, there is good news for us. Because will anyone be able to survive? Well, the Bible tells us that there are survivors in these stories. And they do possess three characteristics, which I'm going to reveal to you in a moment. But what I love about this is God doesn't leave him. 
Because while John is sitting there hopeless, all of a sudden, as if in an interlude, because God had been giving him in succession a vision, one seal after the other. He had gone through the first seal, the second seal, third, fourth, fifth, and then the sixth when John became hopeless. But instead of continuing with the seventh seal, almost as if on a commercial break, an interlude, God knowing exactly what it was he needed to hear, God takes his attention elsewhere. And the word of God says, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. It says, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. Good news was coming. You see, John was in despair because it did not seem like anybody would survive. It did not seem like anybody could make it through it. But God pauses for a minute and shows him that there are four angels holding back the winds of strife. If you think it's bad now, imagine what will happen when the angels let go. But it says don't hurt the earth and don't hurt the people on the earth until we seal them on their foreheads. Now we've got to recognize that there is a significance to the sealing because the sealing comes as God's promise of hope. A seal in the Roman society served three different purposes. You see, an angel comes literally from the east. When it talks about coming from the rising sun, it is talking not about the cardinal direction of the east, but it's actually talking, because you will notice in scripture, when it talks about coming from the rising of the sun, salvation and deliverance comes from the east. So what God is trying to tell them is your salvation, your deliverance is coming. Hold on, because your curse will be broken. And so they come from the rising sun. They hold back the winds of strife. And then we see that they are sealed because the angel will place a seal, uh, which is offered as protection. This is an act of grace. Because you see, God wants to make sure that you and I make it through. The good news is God is coming to break the curse in your life and to break it permanently. And the fact is that even though it may seem like nobody will be able to make it through, God is going to show his grace and give you favor so that you will come out on the other side. You see, a seal in that society serves three purposes. The first of which is to indicate authenticity. When you have the seal that is implemented on, on, on an item, what it shows is that it is genuine. You see, what, oftentimes people will look at us and try to judge our Christianity. They will try to tell you if you are good enough for God. You, you know, there are people who have oh, opinions about you. They will tell you if you are meet up to the standards. They will look at what you wear. They will look at, at how you dress. They will look at how you talk. They will look at your level of education and say, you can't be the real deal. But when God puts his seal on you, what he's saying is that you are authentic. You are the real deal. You are genuine bona fide. So the first thing that the seal does is that it makes you and declares you as authentic. You know, uh, when I was growing up, I used to love to go to New York City. Because in Canada, we, to be honest, we pay too much taxes. And to buy clothes would be so expensive. So our big thing, and I know Pastor Matt is laughing because he did the same thing too. We would drive down Labor Day weekend, and we would go down to New York City, perhaps on Flatbush Avenue, and we'd be walking down Flatbush. And we'd be looking for deals, and then you'd have this brother run up to you. He'd open up his coat and he'd have some watches. Yeah. He, he'd have a stand and it have some shirts. Yeah. Now, now, I was young and I was naive. So I remember seeing this, this shirt that had this, this patch on it and it was saying Tommy Hilfiger. I said, oh, I can't, I, 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 can I afford that? He said, $10, brother. I said, $10? I said, man, how fast can I get you the money? I got my Tommy Hilfiger shirt and then I get, went back to Montreal and I rocked it. <laughs> and I, I, 
you know, you know, because I, I couldn't afford it at the, the Montreal prices. But here I had my Tommy Hilfiger. And the first time I wore it, it looked good. Then I went to put it in the washing machine. Well, somebody, ha somebody say, have mercy. Because all of a sudden, I saw that H start to look like a broken L. I, I, I didn't know what happened. And somebody said, what you've got to do is you've got to look at the label. And I saw 100% cotton fruit of the loom. And I learned that there was a difference between looking like it and being authentic and genuine. What God declares upon you when his seal is upon you is that you are no knockoff. You are no fake. You are the real deal. And so a seal authenticates you. Secondly, it denotes ownership. You see, when we are sealed by God, it tells us that we belong to God. Now this is important because the devil will try to make you believe that you belong to him. You know, he will bring up your past and say, look at all the things you did. Look at how you messed up. Look at, look at, at all the things and you think God can love you and you want to run around and act like you're a better person? Man, can I tell you about yourself? It doesn't matter what your past was. The fact is that when Jesus Christ bought you with the price of his shed blood, you now belong to God. And so people can try to put you in a box. You, you know, there are some Christians that even though God says, I bought you and I took your sins and I cast them into the depths of the ocean, there are some folks who are experts at scuba diving. Yeah. They get their scuba gear on and they start to go sin searching and they go down to the depths of the ocean. Now we've got to understand the levels that they're going to go to because if you recognize that the deepest part of the ocean is about seven miles deep. Down that part, it's so dark that they have angler fishes. And if you've ever seen an angler fish, it, is, it has to create its own light because it cannot see otherwise. You have, you have, and I was looking at some pictures of a fish that they call the blobfish. The pressure and the density is so heavy that the fish looks simply like a blob of fat because of the pressure that is on it. What we've got to recognize is that people will go deep sea fishing for our sins and then they will come back up and try to put it back on you. But you know, we get all bent out of shape. We get all nervous and worked up, worrying that people are going to find this on me. You don't have to do anything except to tell them, I don't belong to the devil, I belong to God. I belong to God. I belong to God. You see, that doesn't matter because God buried it and I'm his. So when we are sealed, it denotes that we are owned and we belong to God. But then there's a third thing that I love. The third thing a seal does is it offers us protection. Now, during the times, particularly of the, the medieval periods, we, we recognize that when a king would send someone on their behalf, they would give to them their seal, their signet. Because what would happen is if somebody, whether it was an enemy king, a band of robbers, would come and try to detain them, they would simply pull out the ring of the king. They would look at it, and if they had enough sense, they would leave well enough alone. Now, this is important. Because you see, when we belong to God, the enemy is going to try to send stuff in our way. He's going to try to send people to mess with us. In fact, even as we are looking at the things that are coming ahead, we would be at a loss. But when we pull out the seal of God, we are under God's protection, which means that if you mess with me, then I've got the authority of the king and his army. And let me tell you about God's army. The Bible says that there are angels that are as the sand of the sea. They are a myriad of angels. They are thousands times thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. Have you done the math? Understand that when you start to mess with me, that all I've got to do is say, Father, 
and he will dispatch angels that no man can number and they will come and when you stand they may be one two or even three but have you seen who's behind me? Understand that even though the enemy is trying to take your peace, you ought not be afraid because you have been protected by God. You are under his covering. The good news is no matter how he messes with you, you will always come out on top because you are more than the enemy who is against you. Can you turn to your neighbor? Can you turn to your neighbor and tell them don't be afraid? God's got your back. And so the good news, the good news, the good news is when you have been sealed by God, you have been authenticated. You have now switched ownership from the devil, and now you belong to God. And now you are moving through life with the protection of God. So now we see that there comes a ray of hope. But even further now, John now is taken even further in vision, and he begins to see. He says, after these things, I looked and I beheld a great multitude which no man could number, of all nation, tribes, people, and tongue, standing before his throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And verse 11 says, And the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God saying amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. So now John sees this great multitude which no man can number of all nations, tribes, kindreds, uh, people, uh, tongues, and they were standing around the throne of God and they were clothed with white robes. Now John sees good news. He sees a celebration. Now, this is a stark difference from the sun turning black and from the moon turning to blood and the stars falling and the earth shaking. Now, 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 that's something that he would like to watch. John begins to get excited because they're, they're having worship and it's taking his mind off of the, the, the bad things that were to come. But here is what happens. Because while his attention is on this, all of a sudden, here is what the word of God says. Then one of the elders answered him. He did what? Answered him, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. These are the ones who have come out of great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, now I want to pause for a minute because... The Bible says, if we just go back to the previous slide, then one of the elders answered him. Now, I've just read from chapter 9, when, from verse 9, when he starts to see this vision. Right through up until the elder came and answered him. Can I ask you a question? In any of those preceding verses, what was the question that was asked? There is no question in the immediate verse, but in fact, God had been setting him up all along. Because the last question that John asked was who will be able to stand? Who would survive? Who would be the ones that would make it through until the end? And while he was perplexed and wondering, God showed him this beautiful vision where he saw that the angels were holding back the winds of strife and that, they were, and that they were going to seal the people of God. And then he showed them a number that no man could number. And then they came and they answered him saying, do you know who these people are in white? They began to ask what could be deemed a rhetorical question. And they, they, he wanted to draw his attention to the scene before for him. You were wondering who was going to be able to stand? Well, now you know. You see, we recognize that in these people were those who came through. 
those people who were standing on the other side. You want to know who the survivors are? Let me tell you. And then it goes on to describe what I will show you as three characteristics that these people possess. Now, I dare to suggest that if we are going to want to figure out how we are going to get from here to there on the other side, then we too must possess the same characteristics. There are three characteristics. The first of which is that he tells us that these are they who have come through. They've come out. They are people who possess the first characteristic of perseverance. You know, the, the, the thing that God wants for us to know is that if we are going to be the, the people that make it through the end of time, we have got to be people who are able to persevere. The problem with us is that when the going gets tough, everybody runs. When life gets hard, we quit. But there is a saying that winners never quit and quitters never win. What God wants for us is to, to, to be people who will persevere through the trials and through the storms of life. Don't give up. You know, in all the years that I've been pastoring, there have been very few people who have come to me to say, Pastor, I'm leaving the church because of a fundamental theological differences that I have with the Seventh-day Adventist organization. No, 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 no. What they come and say to me is, Pastor... This person is getting on my last nerves. And they're doing this to me, and they're talking about me, and, you know, they're just so mean. And I'm so sick of the church, and I'm done with the church, and I ain't coming back to the church. So, so, so this is it. We quit. We don't endure, and we let somebody else rob us of our blessing. What God is trying to tell us is that he is not going to cause us to be victorious if we quit. We have got to be people who persevere, and sometimes he allows trials to come into our lives only to make us stronger. I remember hearing this analogy about this man who, who one day got up, and, and the Lord spoke to him clearly in vision. And said to him that he must go outside of his house and that there is a rock that was by, by in his yard and he must take that rock and he must push it. So the man said, all right, the Lord has spoken. So he got up and he went and he saw this rock, but it was a big rock. It was bigger than him. But he said, all right, God said I can do it, so I'm going to do it. So he went and he pushed the rock said, all right, in the name of Jesus, this rock is going to move. And he, he, nothing happened. He said, all right, maybe, 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 maybe it's just me. Maybe I didn't have enough faith. All right, in the name of Jesus, nothing happened. So he went back into his house. He said, all right, maybe I misunderstood. But the Lord spoke to him again the next morning and said, go outside and, and, and push the rock said, all right, this rock's got to go. I know God is speaking. He's consistent. So he went again and he pushed the rock and nothing happened. It didn't budge. Not a millimeter, not even a half of a millimeter. It didn't even shake. But every day as he got up to have his devotion, the Spirit of the Lord told him to go and to push that rock. He was doing this for about six weeks when finally, as the Lord spoke to him in devotion, he said, Lord, I've been pushing that rock for six weeks and it hasn't budged an inch. I'm not doing it anymore. He said, what's your problem? The Lord responded back, said, what's your problem? He said, well, you told me to go and move this rock and I go every day and, and, and it's not doing anything. He goes, no, 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 no. I didn't tell you to move the rock. I told you to push the rock. Now, 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 he was frustrated because even though it seemed that that impediment was still in his way, he thought God needed him to move it. God said, I didn't need you to move the rock. The rock wasn't my problem. He says, you want to see what I was doing? I need you to come here with me. Come, come, let's go in the bathroom. He said, all right, take off your shirt. You see, the man once had a little bit of a round belly. You know, his, his muscles went down instead of up. Gravity had taken over. But, but, but after six weeks... When he took off his shirt, he noticed that there was a line running down his belly. And he had a six-pack. And I'm not talking about the one that you drink. His arms 
didn't go down, but when he bent them, they came up. Yeah. All of a sudden, his chest was so flat, yeah. you can iron a shirt on it. Yeah. said, man, I didn't even notice I looked this good. God said, my problem wasn't with the rock. My problem was with you. I needed you to be better than what you were. And so I told you to push the rock. And what I needed you to do was to persevere and push that rock and understand that the change I was trying to create was not in the rock, but I was trying to create the change in you. And if we would let God do his work, we will see that he is transforming us and changing us and making us and shaping us. But the problem is we quit too fast. Next time somebody is getting on your nerves. Next time your boss tells you to do something that you don't want to do. Next time the job seems too hard. Even if your children are getting on your last nerves. We've got to persevere. The first characteristic is we've got to stay the course. Because if we can't make it through this, how are we going to make it through what John saw? Second characteristic. The Bible tells us that they washed their robes. Now, this is important because washing our robes means that we are going through the process of being redeemed. You see, we realize that what it is that we are bringing to the table is not sufficient. It is spotted garments. But God says, I've got a different robe that I need you to wear. And that means that you've got to take off the old man, the old way of doing things, and you've got to allow me into your heart and in your life. You know, there are some folks who have never given their heart and their life to Jesus. You can grow up in church, but not give your life to Jesus. You, you can go to church all your life, but still don't know God. That's why the Bible says that there will be some who will come and say, I have cast out demons in your names. I have healed the sick in your name. And the Bible says Jesus will say from them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I know you not. You see, their prob the problem is many of us can become cultural Christians. You know, it is that we do what we do because it's what we know to do, but not because we know who called us to do it. Yeah. Well, I don't think you caught that. Yeah. You see, we, we are just going through the motions because it's what is expected. It's what mommy did. It's what daddy did. It's what granddaddy did. And I'm fourth generation, so I've just got to go with the flow. But what we've got to realize is that what God wants from us is that we are changed. We are transformed. The old person that we are cannot make it through. That's why there are some who may even have gone through the process of being baptized. Baptized because their friends did it. Baptized because mommy said it's time. Baptized because daddy said it's now or never. But yet they do not know Jesus. And so there will come a time and need when there will be those who have got to shake off the old man, the old mantle, going through the process and say, you know what? It's not about mommy. It's not about daddy. It's not about the fact that I'm a fourth or a fifth or a sixth generation. I want to be with Jesus for myself. So I'm going to get baptized once again, rebaptized because I need to know Jesus for myself. And so we've got to cut that, that, that idea that we are going to get in on the coattails of somebody else. So sometimes we may need to make that decision like those who have chosen to be baptized today and get baptized for the first time. We may choose to make the decision to realize that we were only playing church and maybe we've got to get baptized again a second time. But if we are not redeemed... If we are not changed, then we will not make it through. Are you with me? And the third characteristic is that they made their robes white. Now, I distinguish this from the idea of washing our robes. We realize that the washing of the robes is to put them in water. 
baptism. Connecting, making that commitment to Jesus Christ that we are dying to the old man and becoming new. But then it tells us that after it's been immersed in the water, it's not just coming back out and doing the same old thing. Have you ever had to do laundry and you put your whites in and you just can't get that stain out or it's dingy? You become frustrated so you want to put it back again. Well, understand when God takes our lives and he puts us in the water, it's not to come out to be the same person. But in fact, it tells us that there is supposed to be a transformation that takes place. I love how the Bible describes this in the Greek. Because in the Greek, the, the, the word for white, leukos, le leukos, tells us uh, that it is not just white, like the white of my shirt. But in fact, it is an incandescent, radiant white, almost like the white light. So when it talks about wearing a robe of white, what it's talking about is not wearing just a regular white robe, but a robe that radiates with light. Now, 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 think about this for a minute. Because I said, well, you know, I've heard this before. And I remember that the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve, when they were, were, were created, that the Bible says that they were naked, but they were not ashamed. Now, in the, the, the book, The Patriarchs and Prophets, it describes that Adam and Eve, though they were naked, they were covered with a robe of light. You see, that light represented the righteousness of God that was their covering. You see, what we are reminded of is that the righteousness of God must become our covering. We cannot stay the same old person putting on our Christianity when we feel like and taking it off. Because remember, if we are to be sealed, then we are authenticated. We are the real deal, and we belong to God, which means that our transformation is something that is happening so that we can wear the righteousness of God. Are you with me? And so we realize that the third characteristic is that we will be changed. And it will be complete when the Bible says that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that we shall be changed. The mortal shall put on immortality. The corrupted shall put on the incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Understand that God is trying to change you and me to fit us for glory. But here's my favorite part of all of this. My favorite part of all of this the Bible tells us, I'm going to come back here in, in a minute, is actually how that whole passage is written. Now, you won't see this in the English. In the English, you'll see that he saw, they sat, they sang. Those are all what? Past tense words. Now, reading this in the Greek, I understood and learned that they were using what they called the language of the future past. Now, the technical term is the proleptic use of the Arabs for those who read Greek. But for those who don't read Greek, it's simply the language of the future past. Now, catch this. It is written in the past tense. Now, if you're talking about something that's going to happen in the future, you're going to use words like will, shall, soon to be, is going to be, future tense. Make sense? So God is talking to John about something in the future. But instead of using words like you will see, or they shall do, or they're going to, he's writing and using the words in the past tense. I dare to suggest to you that what we understand from the language of the future past is even though God is talking about something that is still future, it is so certain that he's already put it in the past tense. I don't, I don't think you heard me. God is talking about a reality that is coming. It has not yet happened, but because he is so certain of it, because he has made every provision for it to come to pass, he tells you and writes it as if it's already done. You see, the fact is that even though it may seem like there is uncertainty ahead of you, God says it's already done. Even though it may seem like it's no way you're going to make it, God says it's already done. What I need for you to do, 
Oh, I wish somebody would get excited with me. What I need for you to do is to keep on walking. You see, the road may be hard, but keep on walking. Because what I'm trying to tell you is that what is ahead of you is so certain that if you only stay the course, hallelujah, if you only hang in there, that your end is so certain, I've declared it in the past. Can I illustrate? I remember this story about a young boy who used to love to read comics. Go ahead and play something for me. Now this young boy went and bought a comic about his favorite superhero. There was a new issue that was coming out. And in this issue, it showed this new villain. He was big, he was bad, he was mean, and he was just causing a havoc. But then as he turned the page, he saw his hero flying in. And as the hero was flying in, he began to get excited because he turned the page and he saw his hero land in front of this villain. He was expecting his hero to go and to put everything right, but he turned the page and all of a sudden he saw that the villain was so strong, he took his hero and he threw him clear across to the next page. He turned the page again and he saw that the villain was pounding on his hero. He turned the page and saw that the villain had begun to beat on his hero and his hero was lying there. He turned the page and his hero was dead. The young boy became so frustrated, so angry. He took his comic book and threw it across the room. He didn't want to read anymore. But he couldn't hold out after a couple of hours. Curiosity got the best of him. So he went across the room and found the place where he had placed, the, where he had thrown the comic book. He put, picked it up, but this time he didn't continue where he left off. He opened the book to the last page. He looked at it. He smiled and closed the book. He opened the book and he saw this villain standing confident and brash and boasting. But he looked at him and said, you don't know what I know turned the page and saw that this villain was making a mess and was causing havoc and running amok and he, he smiled at the villain and said you don't know what I know turned the page and saw his hero coming in and confronting the villain and the villain was throwing his hero clear across the page but he said to himself you don't know what I know he turned the page and he saw the villain pounding on his hero but he, he, he was not worried he simply said you don't know what I know. He turned the page and he saw that his hero was now lying on his back, dead. Villain standing over him laughing, that sinister laugh. But he said, you don't know what I know. Now he turned the page and the caption read, three days later. He saw his hero coming back from the grave. Bigger! Stronger, faster, said, you don't know what I know. He saw his hero coming back to the villain, confronting the villain once again. The villain laughed and said, I did it once, I'll do it again. But the little boy said, you don't know what I know. He turned the page and the villain went to hit the hero, but the hero caught the villain's hand in the palm of his hand. He said, man, you don't know what I know. So he turned the page and he saw the hero throw the villain clear across the page. said, you don't know what I know. He turned the page again and saw the hero beating on the villain. He turned the page and said, you don't know what I know. He saw the hero standing, his foot on the chest of the villain. The villain was defeated, never to rise no more. What I'm trying to tell you is that God has written the end of this story. 
God has declared that there is a number that no man can number wearing white robes and waving palm branches and you're wondering who's going to make it through. Can I tell you about this multitude? These are they who have come through great trials. These are they who have washed their robes and made them white. So even though it may seem like there is a crisis coming, you don't know what I know. <laughs> Understand that when the enemy comes and tries to discourage you and get you discouraged, you don't know what I know. Even when you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you've got cancer, yes. you don't know what I know. Even though the boss comes and tries to tell you we may have to lay somebody up, I don't know what we're going to do. You don't know what I know. Understand that because God has already written the end of the story, you don't have to worry, but all you've got to do in the name of Jesus. I may be tired. I may be weak. But I know that if I persevere to the end, I know that if I'm connected with Jesus, I know that if I allow him to transform me, that my end shall be better than my beginning. Can you look at your neighbor? Can you encourage them with these words? You don't know what I know. You don't know. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know where I'm going to get my next meal. But I know this, that God has already made a way out of no way. God has already made a way of escape. God has already provided so that even though I cannot see it, with mine eyes, I shall receive it if I but trust him. We walk by faith and not by sight because the words of the master declares that in the end it shall, it shall, it shall be done and his reward is certain. And so this morning, this morning there is somebody who is going through and they don't know how they're going to get to the end of the story. But today I'm declaring in the name of Jesus, if you will claim his promise, your end is certain. And so I want to make an appeal. I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet because God is about to break the chains in somebody's life today. You see, there's somebody in this room. There's somebody in this room that right now the enemy is trying to get them not to see past their hand. He's telling you it can't be done. He's telling you there's no way. But what I'm telling you, you don't know what I know. Today, I'm going to make an appeal. First, to those who have come through this door and you want what God has for you. You want it. But you know that you've got to give yourself fully to him. We are going to be having a baptism service today and don't let anything or anyone keep you from your blessing that God has for you because I've already told you it's about persevering it's about having that relationship with Jesus. And it's about being transformed. So today, maybe for the first time, you need to make that, that relationship with Jesus right. And give your life to him and be baptized. I need you to come. Because God has an end for you. If that's you, it doesn't matter where you are. If you're in the overflow room, I'm inviting you in the name of Jesus to come to this altar and claim your blessing.